Good evening and welcome to episode 105, episode 105 of the Political Might Podcast. We've got so much to dive into today. The president has reannounced officially that he will be seeking re-election in 2024. We also have the fact that Tucker Carlson, who has been generating millions of views on Fox News with his controversial statements over the years, has officially been fired by Fox. Don Lemon has been ousted by CNN. I'm so excited to be able to just dive right in with some of the folks that we have on tonight. We're going to be joined, of course, by Professor Fred Cook of Howard University School of Law, an adjunct professor and current practicing attorney in Washington, D.C. Ishmael Ibrahim, who is a practicing attorney in the Chicago area. Joy Vendura, who is currently wrapping up her second year uh, in law school. And we might be joined a little bit later by Jerry Ford, uh, who is also a friend of the show of the Political Mike podcast. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining. I want to open up the discussion with a look to President Biden's re-election bid. That's why I'm running for re-election. Because I know America. I know we're good and decent people. I know we're still a country that believes in honesty and respect and treating each other with dignity. That we're a nation where we give hate no safe harbor. We believe that everyone is equal, that everyone should be given a fair shot to succeed in this country. Every generation of Americans have faced the moment when they have to defend democracy. Stand up for our personal freedom. Stand up for the right to vote and our civil rights. And this is our moment. If you're with me, go to JoeBiden.com and sign Let's finish this job. I know we can. Because this is the United States of America. There's nothing, simply nothing we cannot do if we do it together. Of course... His presidency, his first term, he, he admits in the video, was committed to, towards restoring American democracy, to restoring some of the normalcy uh, that Americans were longing for <clears throat> in the uh, waning days of the pandemic and with the ongoing crisis of the Trump administration. Now, the president's approval rating fell to 39 percent uh, this month with the U.S. economy 
uh, show signs of losing steam. Uh, and that's according to a Reuters Ipsos poll. Um, the three-day poll, which ended on Sunday, showed a modest decline from last month when 42%, 42% of respondents said approved of Biden's performance as president of the United States. Um, his popularity declined almost steadily after he took office in January 2021, uh, bottoming out at 36% in mid-2022. It has remained near that level since then. Um, now, I want to open up the floor by asking your opinions on whether, you know, what are the pros and cons of Biden uh, going ahead and launching this re-election bid 18 months out? Of course, Biden is known to be nostalgic. And, you know, April 25th was the anniversary of his first uh, campaign announcement. Um, here we are four years later, and he's kicking off the road to 2024. Your thoughts? Biden's been running for president for pretty much 40 years. So once he got into the White House, that's not something he was going to just give up because he finally got there when he has the opportunity to uh, extend his his uh, his lease on the people's house. But uh, age is definitely an issue, is going to be an issue. The two front runners on either sides are going to be on the wrong side of 75, so to speak. Uh, obviously, of course, personally, I've always felt that it's not necessarily the age you are as much as it is the age of your ideas and your ability to and willingness to progress them. My main criticism of Biden has always been that he has not always been willing to slug it out in the big fights. But it's also a very, we're over a year and a half from November 2024. There are a million and one things that can happen. For the record, I do think Biden would have the upper hand uh, in the Trump rematch simply because he's beat him once before. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a long way out. That's why I don't think polling would necessarily be the best forecaster as much as it is uh, the mood of the White House and what Biden is trying to do for now and the kind of priorities he's trying to signal he cares about. Now, what I'm not hearing is Biden on the record. You know, look at the legislative accomplishments. Let's take Biden out of the picture and replace him with just, you know, a generic Democratic president. Would we still be having some of the same concerns, you know, to Nate's point about age? You know, you're talking about the Inflation Reduction Act, the American Rescue Plan, the child tax credit that was a part of the American Rescue Package, the amount of um, vaccinations that were able to be distributed within record time, um, a coordinated federal effort to make sure that everyone was not just aware of the benefits of the vaccine, but made sure that they were the majority of Americans have taken the vaccine, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Infrastructure Bill, um, the PACT Act, the CHIPS Act. Um, you can go on and on about some of the accomplishments he had and compare that to his predecessors. I think that his record um, actually surpasses that of Barack Obama and Bill Clinton's uh, during this point in their presidencies, respectively. Now, I understand that there were, of course, different circumstances. Of course, Biden comes in during a time where the economy is reeling from inflation, there's a worldwide, um, you know, supply chain uh, issue. There, are, there's a pandemic that the world is reeling from. That aside, when you look at the the record, I mean, this guy has gotten win after win after win, despite the fact that some of his large ticket items were not passed into law. Um, you know, you even look at the Justice Forty Initiative, the first of its kind, a, a federal commission d dedicated to looking to address um, some of the environmental injustice that takes place in the country. I mean, this has been a presidency, I think, so far that is propelling the United States further into the 21st century in, in its first three, almost three years than the, pre the previous four years of his predecessor. 
Yeah, Mike, I, you know, I agree with you. You know, Biden has had some major wins, but, you know, as you had mentioned, he also has had some major losses also. I think Biden's um, issue in 2024 um, is not really going to be much about his age, but more about, I think, when he was elected, I think the American public really kind of saw him as a placeholder. I think there's a lot of um, individuals who vote for him, one, because they wanted to, um, you know, reintroduce some normalcy into the United States government, um, you know, make sure that we're positioned um, on the global stage and to kind of, you know, recover some of our relationships with our allies. Um, but I, I don't think many people saw Biden as, you know, this president is going to be for eight years. They saw him as, look, you're, you're there to be a stopper, to stop the craziness that was happening with Donald Trump. Um, you know, and I, I think, you know, the only way that he would have like a real, I think, upper hand in 2024 is if the Republicans make a mistake and, you know, nominate Donald Trump again. Uh, but I think uh, the Biden administration, you know, Joe Biden's you know, re-election campaign will run up against a really tough battle if that candidate on the Republican side is not Donald Trump. If it's a Ron DeSantis or um, another individual, uh, you know, who could catch the mood of America at the time. Look, in 2024, the mood might be a lot different than what it is now. Uh, you know, there, you know, there might be another foreign policy uh, incident or some concern. Uh, we, we just don't know what would happen within now, within to next year. Uh, so I don't think it's really more about the age of Biden. I think it, it really is because the the election of 2020 wasn't really giving Joe Biden a mandate saying that we believe Joe Biden is, you know, our leader. It is we need a play stopper. We need somebody to come in to create a normal environment again. And he has accomplished that. Uh, so now my, a lot of people might say, well, now it's time for us to actually move on and find you know the leader who's going to take us into this next uh, quarter of, uh, of the century move on to who and for what i mean of the prospective republican nominees because it's a it's an a b switch it's republicans or democrats democrats don't seem to be willing to not nominate joe biden now maybe they will be but right now that's not seemingly where they are so is biden worse than Ron DeSantis, than Donald Trump, than Mike Pence, than any of the so-called leaders among the Republican side? I think the answer is no. Now, I, I think you're right. We've sort of collectively caught up in this thing of, well, Joe is too old. I think that Nate's right. It's, it's not your chronological age, it's so much the age of your ideas and, and your willingness to push them. I have a whole host of problems with Joe uh, Biden on policy positions and ideas. But there's no question in my mind that if tomorrow morning I had to wake up and vote for Joe Biden, Santos, Donald Trump, or Mike Pence, or any of these other folks, I'm voting for Joe Biden. And whether he's 86 at the end of this or not, I'm voting for Joe Biden. Now, it's not my choice, not, not who I would design, but I just don't think there's a choice rationally at that point. What, would you be into do you agree that um going into the election if kamala harris remains as the vice president as i expect she would be i think it would be a great vote of confidence if joe biden would win the election again with kamala harris as the vp i think that would show a great deal of uh public support for kamala harris even if this potential question of you know age is still lingering because i think that would yeah just be like a side effect something to think about you know the, the thing that really just ticks me off about this whole discussion is that the predecessor was literally known for funneling in McDonald's burgers in the White House. We didn't see him on a bicycle once, right? Virility. 
nobody raised an issue or batted an eye about the guy's age getting in the way. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying that in light of the fact yeah. that okay, acknowledging, okay, Biden is 80, his, predece uh, his predecessor is four years younger. When we take Biden, you know, for his advice, you know, just watch me, he says. When he says, watch me, you know, let's watch him. And, and you know, he's already acknowledged that he had a speech impediment. People, you know, the, 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 the trolls on Twitter and Instagram and, and cyberspace love to, you know, come up with compilations of Biden stuttering and use that as evidence of, hey, he look, he's incompetent, right? Meanwhile, the predecessor, his predecessor was literally on the stage with some of the folks in his health advisory team talking about the benefits of injecting light into the human body, right? And, and, and you know, when you just look at competency, I, you know, I was listening to Joe Scarborough this morning and he said, you know, at the end of the day, I, you know, the, the thing that people resonate with when it comes down to Biden is his normalcy. There are people yelling on both sides. There are people arguing. There are people who are getting into heated discussions. And there's, you know, even the president alluded to it in his campaign rollout video, uh, you know, book banning and, and all this stuff. And, and at the end of it is a guy who's doing his job steadily, right? He's not, you know, and that's the thing I like about Biden. He's not beholden to these polls. There was talk before this video even rolled out. Oh, well, maybe his advisors, some of them are concerned about his polling currently. So maybe that's going to delay his rollout. And it didn't. He rolled out the video as if he was polling at around 51%, right? And, and, and that's the thing that people, I think, appreciate about the president. He's low-key. He does his job. He does it effectively. You know, is he ideal? No. But, you know, at the end of the day, when I compare him to the alternative, like Jim Clymer says, and not the almighty, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, my book was also normal for, you know, someone of that age is that, you know, towards their mid 80s, that there's going to be a decline um, in, in some you know form or fashion. Right. And I'm not saying that he's incompetent. Of course, he's not. And then when you want to compare it to the alternative, which is, you know, you compare it to Donald Trump, of course, Joe Biden is, is better. Um, but I, I think that, you know, those concerns of, you know, his mental capacity um, as he gets into, you know, his mid 80s. You know, I, I think those are legitimate, I think, concerns, not just for him, but for any president of, of, of that age. Um, I, I think, you know, he is a steady presence right now. Um, I, I'm not really convinced, and this might just be me, I'm not really convinced that he's going to be a nominee. Um, I, I think, you know, he had to yeah, announce he's going to offer re-election. But, I mean, it could be a possibility that we get into 2024, and then he decides, hey, you know, I'm not going to run for re-election anymore. Kamala is going to lead this ticket or someone else, right? Because, I mean, you, you can't be a president right now and just say, I'm not going to run re-election and just be a lame duck. Um, so, you know, I, I think that is still a possibility that he might not run. Um, but, you know, I think someone's concerns are, you know, there's some some merit to the concerns about, you know, somebody in their mid-80s uh, being a president. I'm going to say, he, he, he was... He, he was already the oldest president, you know, to take the office when he when he was inaugurated the first time. So now you look into, you know, to bring that back. And so it's just an it, it's it's an issue because people raise this issue with the Supreme Court having lifelong tenure and, and some of these issues. These are just I'm not saying I know the answer to these questions, but they're like reasonable to ask and to discuss. Oh, I'll say this. I'll say this. Folks had the same issues with Eisenhower. They had the same concerns with Reagan. And both of those presidents, when you look at their record, both Republican, the historians have looked back and characterized their presidencies as 
hidden hand presidencies. In other words, on the outset, it looked like here's an old man who's not really, you know, aware of what is going on in the federal bureaucracy, where in fact, he had a, a, a dominating presence in every decision. You know, I think Kennedy described himself as the hub and center of a wheel. And I think that description adequately describes Eisenhower. You're talking about the president who was responsible for the interstate highway system, right? The president who was responsible for the establishment of NASA in response to Sputnik going up in the sky in 1957. You're talking about Reagan, right? We're, we're still feeling some of the policies of the Reagan administration today, right? Many have characterized the 1980s up to this period as one period that could be characterized by how Reagan reshaped the presidency and the executive office. Now, bringing it back to Biden and, and, and you know, his, you know, reelection announcement, I think the fact that he's announced 18 months out gives him a fundraising advantage, right? Because think about it, if he were to do what, what you said, Jerry, it would upend the DNC. I mean, the DNC, many have argued, has been dysfunctional since 1992. Imagine how much more dysfunctional it would be when some potential candidates now have to scramble and jump into this race because the president is out. I don't think they're just going to clear the field for Kamala Harris. I'm sorry. It may, it, 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 it may energize it, though, Mike, as well, on the, on the complete flip side of that coin. But, but I don't while know it, energized, to be completely yeah. honest, I mean, there's a very deep Democratic bench that seems to be very happy to kind of wait around till 2028. But we get to say January 2024, and suddenly Joe Biden isn't running after all of them. They have to put all their money into running now. They have to create an infrastructure and do all of that, you know, six weeks out from uh, South Carolina. That just would not be an ideal situation for anybody. I think, though, as it relates to polling, uh, we shouldn't necessarily confuse uh, support for uh, Biden's popularity with support for Biden himself and his policies, right? Like we watched last year when Biden was headed into the midterms, you know, as a historically unpopular president, and Democrats were looking at, you know, a 2010 level wipeout in both houses. Well, not necessarily both houses, but we're looking at a 2010 level wipeout, and they avoided a red wave and lost like seven seats in the House and picked up a seat in the Senate without losing a single incumbent. And suddenly a bunch of Republican figures were like, hey, we've got to stop underestimating Joe Biden. He's just passed this big legislation. He avoided a wipeout. He's, you know, fighting a war in Ukraine without using American soldiers. He's, you know, happy to be underestimated and we've got to stop focusing on, you know, his age and his stutter. Um, that being said, though, with these accomplishments, and you listed some of them, Mike, I think most presidents would love to have the second half of 2022 that Biden had, and he, where he passed, you know, chips, and then inflation reduction, and then avoided a huge wipeout in the House, and got a huge gift in a very dysfunctional Republican uh, House conference. But the problem is that the Biden White House does not have these telegenic media figures that are able to go and kind of make this declaration to the people. One thing Biden is very masterful at is getting in people's, is getting in front of people and talking to them one-on-one. -on -one. You don't get that same opportunity with cable news or when you're just doing Zoom speeches. Uh, Biden, uh, Obama and Clinton were much better with the giving big speeches and talking to people that really can set a conversation going. So that's been one of his challenges but we shouldn't necessarily confuse unpopularity with a lack of support because truthfully a lot of people are
resigned to the reality that Marianne Williamson is not going to be the Democratic nominee in 2024, and neither will uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. But you know, if we if people have to go with Biden again, they're much more willing to kind of hold their noses and check his name on the on the uh, on the ballot. Yeah, and I just think that we have to keep in mind that moving forward, there's been a shift in macroeconomic policy that we haven't seen in quite a long time, and that's still resolving itself. We recently had, you know, the failure of one of the top 20, at least, if I'm not mistaken, SVB banks in the, in the country, where the government, it was essentially a bailout, you know, so this government, you know, so like these are the kind of conditions that are in the backdrop of the policies that Joe Biden are trying to pass to after that at the end of the day, I've been impressed with Joe with this administration on on some kind of on some levels. But I've also been some areas left wanting, things like Medicare. Um so I know we're putting a button on, on this topic, but I just wanna the macroeconomic conditions are gonna be crucial going into twenty twenty four. And and you know I I will say this, you know, a lot of people have said out uh, Afghanistan is an albatross around the president's neck. To your point, Nate, about messaging, people need to people really need to stress the fact that it was Trump, not Biden, Trump, not Biden, who negotiated directly with the Taliban terrorists and excluded the Afghan army. Trump, not Biden, who drew down U.S. forces from 13,000 to 2000, making them vulnerable to another attack. Trump, not Biden, who ordered the release of 5000 Taliban fighters from prison, one of whom would become the new leader of Afghanistan. And it was Trump, not Biden, who wanted to invite the Taliban to Camp David on the anniversary of all days of September 11th. Trump agreed to the May 1st exit from Afghanistan and then bragged that he didn't need an exit strategy. And then during that transition period, the Trump team was not working and cooperating with the Biden team. So, you know, folks want to use Afghanistan as if that was a sign of incompetency for the administration. No, that was the the, the, the after effect of the, the incompetency of Trump. And, and we have to set the record. I mean, the Biden team has to set the record straight. They have to get out in front, embrace what Biden owned as it pertains to that chaotic withdrawal, and, and acknowledge the fact that he was only allowing the policy already set in motion to continue from his predecessor. Now, I, you know, this, this whole race is, is interesting because while we're talking about, like you said, Nate, you talked about his policies. The American public, poll after poll, and I've said it on this platform before, they have shown support for his policies, whether it's the Inflation Reduction Act, whether it's the uh, American Rescue Plan, whether it's the bipartisan infrastructure deal. The Republicans on the other side are tripping over themselves trying to explain. Yeah, Tim Scott, who, had, who launched an exploratory committee, saying, I'm not going to get into the argument about what, how, how many weeks, um, you know, as it pertains to abortion, we should legalize or ab abolish abortion or how many weeks we should determine is viable. And then you have Nikki Haley saying, well, well, we shouldn't lock women in jail for going to get an abortion, but we shouldn't make it easy. And remember the Clinton days when Democrats said we should make it safe and rare. And then you've got Pence and they're all over the map. They're all over the map when it comes down to abortion. And abor the Roe versus Wade overturning was the thing that drove so many Americans to the polls and, and baffled historians who said this is going to be one of those red wave years. And, and, and time after time, again, these people <laughs> dust themselves off and it's as if they learn nothing from what they <laughs> what they just the beating they just endured. You know, instead of coming up with a coordinated message, uh, message on abortion or Roe versus Wade, what do they do? They double down. They, they try to villainize 
the side <laughs> that's actually fighting for access to abortion care. It's, it's amazing to me. Well, maybe they don't care. Uh, you know, I, I, I think I think you've hit on a couple points that I agree with. I think Mr. Biden's administration, Democrats generally, need to be better at articulating what Joe Biden's administration has done. What benefit has come to you as an individual citizen? And this seems to be a, a long run really talk about these things at a granular level to make the connection to the individual voter, potential voter. So that needs to happen uh, because I think I think many of his policies are quite popular, but people don't quite know why they need they need the the the, the details on that. But I think that the other benefit that they have to to exploit is to continue to talk about the extremely unpopular positions of the leading Republicans. The, when I say unpopular, unpopular to the general population. It's not so much a Republican-Democrat thing. It's just they, they are running against the tide of the uh, general sense of the American public writ large. And they continue to do it because they're talking to a very narrow base that keeps telling them you're absolutely right. And so, you know, I heard a guy or lady on TV that they say that the Republicans continue to talk about, you know, freedom for them, but autocracy for you. They want to be free to do whatever they want. And, and the thing they want most to do is to tell you what to do. And it, it's 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 cognitively dissonant. And that, that point has to be made. But but as long as they want to keep doing that, um, I think that the, the, the Joe Biden end of the world has to keep pointing that out and talking about being, as he ran the first time, to being normal, to talk about ways people can work together, to make the connections and to talk about in the hackneyed way, there's much more that's that 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 connects us and separates us in this country. And to talk about that, there there are there is a fringe on either side or whatever you want to do that is never going to connect. But the great mid middle continues to exist, and it is more cohesive than people generally want it to be perceived. And we just got to keep talking about the places where we can agree. No, you know, and and and, and I think that if he does that. He's got a good chance to beat most any of the people who have been put out so far as leading Republican nominees. But that's what I think is going to save him or not. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think that more than anything, what he really needs to fight and what his team really needs to fight is apathy. Um, I think that there are a lot of apathetic voters right now. Um, I think it was Jerry who was saying that when he was voted into office at that time, people were just like, we need to put a stop to this. And so after that, because there was not a proactive, there were not a lot of proactive pro Joe Biden specifically um, people who were looking at him like that after they stopped the problem that they saw as a problem, which was the Trump administration, then people were not nearly as engaged with Joe Biden's administration. And that's why there, there is that messaging issue where, you know, he does need to be more in front of the fact that this is what we're doing and this is how it impacts people on a day to day basis, which is why I do think that it's really um, it's really strategically good for him to have put that bit out so early because it gives him time to build um, proactive support amongst voters instead of just that like 
apathetic. Okay, he's in office because we needed somebody to get rid of what was going on before. Instead, people can actually be involved in a net positive way um, in interacting with his administration, with his policy, what it is that he's done and what he wants to do, rather than just trying to think, rather than just thinking of him as a plug to a problem that previously existed. But I think that he has to, um, like Nate was saying, get in get in front of people. The administration has to get in front of people and get rid of that apathy. I think it's less of it's not as much disapproval as it is just ap an apathetic, um, you know, base right now. Now this week has been a whirlwind of a week, you know, because Fox News host Tucker Carlson and CNN host Don Lemon both abruptly exited their cable outlets this past Monday yesterday following a series of controversies making a seismic shift in the media landscape. Last week, the right-wing cable station settled a 787.5 million defamation suit with Dominion voting systems after hosts, included, uh, including uh, Maria Bartiromo, endorsed false claims that election equipment used in the 2020 presidential election was compromised. Voting technologies company uh, uh, Smartomatic is suing Fox now over similar allegations. And just hours before Fox announced Carlson's departure in a statement, the network was still promoting the his primetime show, indicating just how sudden the separation was. Fox News Media and Tucker Carlson have agreed to part ways, Fox News said in a statement. But it didn't look like they both mutually agreed to part ways. Um, they said, we thank him for his service to the network as a host and prior to that as a contributor. Now, Carlson's last program was this past Friday, uh, Fox News Tonight. Uh, and, 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 you know, it aired at 8. 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now, because of his departure, there's going to be an interim show held by rotating Fox News personalities until a new host is named. Now, Don Lemon, on the other hand, he was fired in response to being ousted. Uh, I'm sorry. He, he, he had a fiery response to being ousted. Um, he said that, you know, he was stunned, that they didn't have the decency to tell him to his face. He said, no time was I ever given indi in any indication that I would not be able to continue to do the work I have loved at the network. It is clear that there are some larger issues at play. Now, what's interesting about Don Lemon's departure is that although, you know, CNN has pointed to a number of controversies, one of them in particular caught my attention. Um, and that is the, the fact that Don Lemon had made a statement that was perceived by many to be offensive to uh, current presidential candidate Nikki Haley uh, when he said that she was past her prime. You know, the, the, the reason why that's so interesting to me is because Nikki Haley in her announcement video declared that it's time <laughs> that there, that we have political leaders who are past their prime, alluding to Biden. And some may have said she was even talking to Trump a little bit. Now, it wasn't it was fine for her to say that, but it wasn't fine for Don Lemon to say that she was past her prime. And, and it's just anyway, I want to get your thoughts about these two firings. Um, do you think that the Tucker Carlson firing was in direct response to the Dominion? Uh, voting systems lawsuit. Uh, Rupert Murdoch all of a sudden, it seems, um, wanted to avoid any potential for another defamation suit down the road. Um, you know, or do you think that there are other factors at play that contributed to his departure? Um, I would think that there are other factors at play, and I could be mistaken, but I think of the shows on Fox News that were actually used um, as evidence in the Dominion case, Tucker's was of like the least. Uh, um, damning if to use such a word like so i could be wrong with that but i did read an article saying as much so i think it may be other factors at play as well and as far as with don lemon i 
I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I hadn't had my ear too close to the ground as far as like the, the rumor mill on this one. But with Tucker Carlson, I think it actually may be something larger than one or two incidents, because I'm sure there have been many incidences in his career that that everyone on this panel would find objectionable and would think have deemed fireable offenses before. So let's just, you know, kind of like really it's it begs the question of like what's really underlying this decision. Yeah, Mike, I think, you know, with the Don Lemon situation, I think throughout societies, throughout history, there has been this double standard um, in regards to women uh, in the public um, eye. Uh, you know, you look at, you know, women who are in journalism, who are anchors. I, I think many people have said in the past that, you know, like, like a, you know, like a, a woman in these positions, um, you know, their prime is they're past their prime in their early 40s or as their age, but a, as a male, a male is in their prime late into their 70s or even, you know, 80s, like the president of the United States. Uh, so I, I think what people was getting at is, you know, kind of that nasty history of, you know, saying that women um, above a certain age, uh, if it's 35 or 40, are past their prime, whereas men uh, could be leaders, could be, uh, you know, face of news organizations, uh, well into, uh, you know, their 50s or 60s or 70s. So I, I think that is what uh, some of the pushback there was about. Another thing with Don Lemon, you know, he, he came out and said that statement that he was stunned. I, I think, you know, the right has been on the wall for a while. I think this has been kind of expected that he was being pushed out of CNN when he lost his, uh, his late night um, position and he was uh, forced into this, this morning uh, show. He came out, he said, look, this is a promotion. Uh, for me to go to the morning show, but I think everybody knew what was actually was happening there. Uh, I think with the Fox News situation, I think it's interesting because I think Fox News is actually kind of reclaiming, you know, their power here and saying, look, we are the kingmaker. Like there, there's no personality that's too big, right? Uh, like, like you know, Fox News, like we can get rid of you. We don't, we don't care. Like, it, you know, they had Glenn Beck, let Glenn Beck go, Bill O'Reilly, and they just keep on creating or giving a platform to someone and making them a, a superstar. Um, so, you know, let, they let go their top, you know, talent and Fox News is going to continue to be Fox News. Um, you know, so I, I think that's interesting to me is how Fox News just continue to um, let go their top talent and, you know, don't seem to miss a, a beat. Uh, even if, you know, we, I, you know, most of us disagree with a lot of things that come out, out of that network. Uh, but I, I think Fox News is going to be all right. Uh, but I think with Don Lemon's situation, um, I, I think he did apologize for his comments, but I think it is really rooted in um, you know, some of this nasty history dealing with the double standard with how women are talked about in the public um, arena. I, I think they just didn't like Don Lemon because Don Lemon is not a very likable person. And I think that he had a pretty uh, uh, checkered history uh, in terms of the internal dynamics at, at, the, at the company, the way he treated staff, the way he responded to superiors. And I think, uh, you know, the, the, the move from where he was on, on the, a primetime evening type program to the daytime program was a demotion. He tried to make it sound as though it was a promotion. Uh, and I think they were just full of Don Lemon. And, uh, you know, he, he just wore out his welcome. Uh, yeah, he said some things that he shouldn't have said and some things he apologized for. But had he been a more uh, pleasant person, uh, an easier person to work with, I think those things would have not gotten him terminated. Uh, you know, the good news for Don, I guess on one level, is he's got a contract. 
Uh, the contract's got termination provisions. It's got severance provisions. So we won't be having a, a benefit to raise money for Don Lemon to take care of himself. Uh, but, you know, he, he he made the mistake that a lot of these personalities make is that that he is bigger than the network, that, that he has some prerogative that they can't exercise to take him away. And he can. And they, and they did. And and Fox, Fox's sort of worldview from Roger Ailes has been to tell our audience what they want to hear again and again. We're not news. There never have been news. They have been entertainment. They have been reinforcing the views that, that, that their audience has. And whether it was O'Reilly, whether it was Glenn Beck, whether it was, uh, I forget the other gentleman's name, they do that. And when you do something that the uppity ups, uh, Murdoch or his sons don't like, you go. But we're, but Fox is going to survive because we're still going to tell our audience what they want to hear again and again and again. Good. And it's 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 an amazing thing. It, it 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 is simple in concept, but as long as you are not committed to news, and and entertainment, and you 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 do what what Happy Days did, you give them the same sort of happy story on happy days or Archie Bunker, if you give the they'll keep. Yeah, Professor Cook, did Don Lemon cut you off in traffic or something? I didn't know he was that hated. No, no, I, I, I don't I don't hate he, Don Lemon, but, but I do say unlikable. I know Don Lemon, and I know people who, who work with Don yeah. Lemon, and, and Don is just not a really warm and fuzzy guy. And But he's not the only one. But he right. got to where his bosses were full. You and, can do that for a while, but at a point you run out. And, and you know, the, the, the thing that I'm trying to get at is why did Rupert Murdoch now wake up and decide that he's bigger than <laughs> Tucker Carlson? I can only That's what I'm asking. It, it only makes sense. Well, I think me. as it relates to Tucker Carlson, there were, you know, 787 million reasons why getting rid of Tucker now would have been the better choice as a, and on top of the one additional reason that being Tucker's leaked text about what a moron Trump was and how stupid his lawyers were and how they couldn't believe people were falling for it. You know, uh, lying is one thing, insulting your viewers and then having that get out is another. And these are the people who keep uh, Fox's lights on. Now, I think as it relates to Don Lemon, the only reason we're thinking of him in the same context of Tucker Carlson and this greater reshuffling in, in news media is just because of the timing of his firing. Obviously, there were there were his comments about Nikki Haley. Um, CNN has been facing declining ratings, and there's of course been the reporting that he has been a generally unpleasant person and oftentimes downright nightmare to work with. So, you know, if they were maybe one or two days apart, or if Lemon got fired first, we wouldn't necessarily be thinking about this. But since you know Tucker Carlson's firing was so straight up out of the blue that you know now another top TV host is out you know, we, we kind of group them together. I think though with Tucker Carlson, it puts Fox in a very interesting situation. It's gonna take a little bit of time. Obviously there's gonna be a new shining star at Fox to pick up the the mantle, but that takes time to develop that kind of on-air presence. Um, but it also puts Fox in a very interesting place as it relates to its actual cable presence because it's in the middle of negotiate, renegotiating its carriage fees for you know, cable providers and Fox charges such a high fee because they have the viewership, especially with Tucker Carlson, who is the most watched cable news host, who was, excuse me, the most watched 
cable news host in the country. And so without him, they lose a lot of leverage in these negotiations. Now, you know, what's interesting is that it's not the fact that Tucker Carlson was responsible for misleading American people as it pertains to, you know, the legitimacy of the 2020 election. No, he's lied repeatedly. So have so many other Fox News hosts. You know, he said on June 10th of 2022, not a single person in the crowd on January 6th was found to be carrying a firearm, not one. He said the United States on this is October 27, 2022, the United States is about to run out of diesel fuel by the Monday of Thanksgiving week. Uh, he says on November 8th, but electronic voting machines didn't allow people to vote in Maricopa County, Arizona. He says on January 9th of this year, the election in Brazil was very clearly a rigged election. Time after time again, he has you know, just said lies. Now, I want to play this exchange between Ted Cruz and Maria Bartiroma that was caught um, on tape. It was a phone call between the two of them. Of course, Ted Cruz was the go-to legal um, you know, soldier for Trump during the the, 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 during the time after the 2020 election to try to come up with a legal legitimate argument for overturning the election and for allowing the states to cast in their own version of electors to allow Trump to get a chance to get back into the White House. It can't just be, you know, somebody tweeted this. It's got to be demonstrable facts that can be laid out with evidence because that's what a court of law is going to look to, not, not just an allegation, but actual facts. And so, you know, I'm hopeful... I want to get your thoughts on, on what you just heard um, in a light of what we were talking about as it pertains to Fox News and, and, and the way they have become not in the words of, you know, Professor Cook, uh, in, you know, a news source, but more of an infotainment source. Ted Cruz. In one of the rare events, I, I agree with him. He 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 talked. He he did a correct statement of what 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 the court's going to require. But but um, I think that you know Fox News has not ever been concerned with facts the way journalists typically are, um, and so they were they were promoting an agenda. They were promoting a worldview that was driven by the paranoia, the conspiracy-based theory of many of their viewers. That's something they're absolutely free to do, uh, it seems to me. The problem is that you can't lie. And that's where I think they got themselves into more trouble than they can fix, is that it's been demonstrated with these tape recordings and emails that they weren't simply reporting what people were saying or talking about things that people that they knew were talking about. They were reporting things as fact that they knew to be untrue. And that's a problem. Uh, and, and I think they're going to have a problem in the, in the, in the other lawsuits that they've been sued uh, around because it's just demonstrably clear that they knew what they were saying was not true. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a topic that was just under active discussion and there's this point and there's that viewpoint and this. They were saying things that they knew just were flat out untrue. Yeah, and that that knowledge of them knowing that what they're spreading is untrue is literally the crux of what all of their, you know, lawsuits and the things that they're going to be facing in court will rest on. And so I do think that especially pertaining to Tucker Carlson, who, as Mike said, 
was just like he was just get on TV and lie. Um, I think that that's a liability now that they're fa being faced with um, kind of this reckoning of like having to deal with the fact that we've known that there have been these lies that have been being perpetuated and that we have been perpetuating to be truth, knowing that we know, knew that they were not the truth. Um, and so I just think that there's kind of an awakening happening now over there where they're like, okay, now we're actually having to face the consequences of the actions that we know, like that we um, knowingly took, the things that we allowed to be said and that we continue to allow to be said. Um, and I mean, obviously that was going to have to end at some point. I think that if this is just the beginning of that end, but, um, I think that they're just coming to that reckoning with the fact that now we have our own people like, okay, we messed up here. Um, especially Ted Cruz was talking about the facts and if they know the facts of the matter, they know what it's going to look like in court when all of that stuff starts to come out. So I just think that it's kind of that, that just, they're having to come to uh, face the reality that. Um, they're not bigger than, you know, what they're not, they're not big enough to be able to say whatever it is that they want to say, um, if they're going to perpetuate that they are a news network, um, even though they are entertainment in that re regard. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I think that's a great, you know, those are great points. Uh, I just don't want it to, I just don't want Tucker to end up being a scapegoat for scapegoat for corporate governance because he wasn't the one went on all those emails and there was a, there, his bosses were you know they had you know uh, a full case so and I did I don't think it'd be wise for the public because in the court of public opinion I don't think it'd be wise for them to get off the hook by pointing to by this fire. I will say this, <clears throat> um, you know when it when I compare how Fox can, can, can use to keep liars on its station, because that's what they are, they're liars. They, 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 they go on TV, they wear suits, they look into the camera and they say things that directly fly in the face, fly in the face of reality for ratings. And, and when you compare that to how MSNBC has gone through multiple shifts in a short amount of time, when I look at, and I see how CNN, you know, kicked uh, Cuomo out with no hesitation, um, you look at some of these other stations, there's no comparison in terms of the, the level of integrity and the degree uh, um, to which maintaining a high caliber matters to these, these stations. And then you compare that to Fox News. And the only reason why they're doing this is because they got caught and they, they, came, they, they came too close to the sun without getting burned. And they know that 2024 is coming and they could not risk that again from happening again. So they, 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 they you know, in your words, Ishmael, they did make him the scapegoat and Rupert right. kicks him out and they hope to, you know, and Nate, and, and, you know, the words of Nate to replace him with somebody else who can be the next star. Remember before him was Bill O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly was the, was the, the, the juggernaut on the Fox news station until things just got out of hand and, and, and the allegations made against him were just to the point where he just realistically could not stay on. Now Bill O'Reilly's on YouTube somewhere. And I think Tucker Carlson is going to probably take, um, his lies to YouTube, or maybe even Newsmax. Who knows? But 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 you see how there's a difference between these new stations operating. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be a great awakening for Fox News. I, I think you know they they, were, they got rid of Tucker Carson, but the thing is they are still the ratings leader, right? They're probably the most profitable. Um, you know, and CNN and NBC, they're really not competing with Fox News if you just look at the bottom line. All right, so they're going to you know, um, find a new talent to be in that space. They're going to recover. Tucker Carson is going to find himself on YouTube with Bill O'Reilly and 
Glenn Beck and the former stars of the day. Um, and they're going to create a new superstar and continue to funnel their, you know, mean people say propaganda, uh, you know, and win the ratings war. Um, I mean, Fox News is a machine, right? It's, it's a, you know, we can argue back and forth about how detrimental that is to, you know, the American politics or our society, uh, but it is what it is. And, you know, they, to me, was just flexing their muscles and saying, look, we don't care how big you are, Tucker Carlson. We are bigger and we will continue. And you now can go and, you know, find a new platform, but your platform will never be as big as the one that we could provide for you. Right. And I just, from a litigation tactical point of view, excuse me, Ish, from a litigation yeah. point of tactical point of view, if you have a guy who has uh, got a lot, you got a lot of evidence that he was a liar. You can't let him stay on TV and lie because he's not going to change. So from a litigation strategy point of view, what you get beat up on if you're Fox is that here's all this evidence of the guy lying in the past and he's still doing it. So the, so the owners know the, the, what's going on and, and it makes him more guilty. So I, I think that's a big part of it when you're looking at how am I going to get through the next group part of litigation if you have to go into a courtroom? You can't have him on the air. You just can't. Yeah. No. I. I think. I think that's a. I think that's a great point um, as well. I, I just wanted to like just mention to not let the other stations off the hook. I do think Fox News is is the most culpable in the spreading of misinformation or unuseful information. But if we look at the other news agency, how how well have they done on keeping the public's eye on the ball that matters, you know, and I think that's what we have to hold their feet to the fire. How, how well have they focused on money and politics? How well have they focused on, you know, military industrial um, like complex? And and so they, they focus on things that, you know, make people feel good just by, you know, clicking a like button, but they don't really focus on things that were actually, you know, result in, you know, fundamental you know, change and for the better. So, you know, responding to Friday's Supreme Court ruling protecting access to widely used abortion medication, lawmakers on both sides of the political spectrum uh, this past Sunday used the case to reiterate many of the abortion arguments they've been making since that landmark Dobbs decision on June 24th of last year. The Supreme Court's order this past Friday prevents rulings from a Texas-based judge um, and a federal appeals court from taking effect while litigation continues. That has the effect of maintaining legal access to the drug uh, mifepristone. The status quo temporarily preserved, politicians on both sides of the aisle used discussion of Friday's ruling and the cases that directly preceded it to double down on past arguments about abortion and their proposals for either making it legal, keeping it legal, or some combination of the two. On Sunday, you had Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina saying, that he will live with whatever decision eventually emerges from the court, while also attacking abortion as a practice and citing his previous support for national legislation limiting it. He said it's a human rights issue. That's what he told CNN State of the Union. At 15 weeks, you have a developed heart and lungs, and to dismember a child at 15 weeks is a painful experience. It's barbaric. It's out of the line with the rest of the civilized world. Now, that's the stance that any Republican who hopes to have a shot at the GOP presidential nomination 2024 will have as well, according to Senator Graham. Anybody running for president who has a snowball's chance in hell in the 2024 primary is going to be with me, the American people and all of Europe, saying late-term abortion should be off the table. Now, when you compare Senator Graham's statements with the polling, in reality, the majority of the American people disapprove of the Dobbs decision, and they want access to abortion care. Of course, the Republicans are now trying to, to morph it into, well, it's a states' rights issue. 
Let's let the states determine it. And regardless of the outcome, you know, if you come from Maryland, if you come from California, you might have abortion care. I don't disagree. I don't agree with it, but you know what? I respect it. That's the state's decision. I think that's the that's the Pence, Nikki Haley uh, wing. And, and then you've got some variation of the two where, you know, you got Senator Tim Scott saying, you know, we should limit the amount of time in which abortions can take place. But he doesn't want to get in. He said, I don't want get, to get into that game, he says. Um, the Republicans are not on one accord at the end of the day about this issue. They're just not. You know, they, they, you know when we're looking at they, they, they've set this as a goal for 50 years. It's finally been achieved and they don't know how to navigate in a post Roe versus Wade America. They really don't know how to, to navigate. They don't know how to campaign. They don't they don't know how to govern. And, and I, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about the Supreme Court's ruling uh, this past Friday in light of Roe versus Wade continuing to be a dominant issue in American politics. The, uh, the court has currently stayed the ruling while they resolve what has become a circuit split between Texas and either California or one of the West, one of the Ninth Circuit states. But um, Washington. Thank you. Uh, however, as it relates to abortion, opposition to abortion is actually a loser for Republicans and kind of has been for a while. Uh, the last anti-abortion candidate to win the popular vote was George Bush in 2004. Before him, it was his father in uh, 1988. What about um, Trump? Trump didn't win the popular vote. Oh, you said popular vote. Sorry, I didn't get that caveat. My bad. Yeah. But um, also, as it related to 2022, Biden and the Democrats were goners in the House until opposition to Dobbs kind of regalvanized Democrats. And I think that Trump has kind of started to realize that, which is why he's not running around on how he nominated three of the six justices that voted to overturn Roe. Uh, I don't think the rest, I think the rest of the field has kind of noticed that, which is why they're trying to say states' rights now. The one who hasn't noticed actually is Ron DeSantis, who's just passed the six-week abortion ban. He's going to have to defend if he's the nominee. But as it relates to abortion, Republicans are kind of stuck in this weird, do we have to, should we go further and, you know, get rid of birth control and, you know, do what Clarence Thomas suggested in getting rid of, you know, birth control and uh, same-sex marriage, or kind of do we stop here and try to kind of reassess where we're going to go next? I think, you know, as you mentioned, Lindsey Graham and his uh, proposed national abortion ban he and Joe Biden used to be very good friends, and there's no better gift he could give his old friend than a 15-week abortion ban in the news right around a presidential election. So if he wants to do that, that's his prerogative. But it would not be a very wise thing electorally for the I mean, you know, it's it, the, the, I will use this word pejoratively, the, the, the zealots on the forced birth side of the issue um, really don't have a stop point. Their view is a national abortion ban, a national uh, birth control ban. Uh, they believe because it is in their core, part of their core beliefs. I don't doubt the sincerity of many of them. I disagree with them, but that's their view. And they want all of us to share or live with their view as being the law of the land. I don't believe that that's what the Constitution requires or, or good sense for that matter. And that's why they're having Republicans are having a difficult time 
playing to that very energized base of zealots and the larger group of Americans who have a resistance to that. And they can't quite figure out whether they want to talk about this in terms of a state's rights issue, which is what the Supreme Court and Dobbs threw back at them and said, well, let the states decide. But, but, but you can hear pretty consistently they're talking about a national ban, which is why Tim Scott brain got how was that possible then how was that possible if, if the supreme court said states and then now you're saying they still push it for a national ban because well, cool because issue. all the supreme court said was that there is no constitutional right to it so since there's no right. constitutional right oh, okay the national legislature can create a legislative mandate mm, mm. and and so what they re, where the where the zealots want is mm. a national law that sets the number at zero because if you really believe that is murder, six weeks, 15 weeks, 27 weeks, there's no difference. All of them are bad. Have, have Republican Congress people came out and, and um, supported a bill that says zero, absolute zero ban? In, in, some in have. Oh, okay. Not the Republican Party view, but some have. Hmm. Some have said that's crazy, too. So I, I don't want to make it. It's not a uniform position among Republicans, mm. but that's mm. what part of what I'm pointing out. I think I think I'm pointing out is that they're wrestling with that. They're trying to figure out where mm. they're going to land as a party. Where is the party position for their candidate when they run in 2024? Because it is going to be obviously an issue. And yeah. where are you, candidate X, Y, or Z, on this issue? Yeah. And that's going to be a real challenge for them because because clearly the American public is not at zero. Yeah. And you, and you have Representative Nancy Mace of South Carolina also expressing concern about this issue, hurting the Republican Party. She said, you know, she cautions against doing too far on anti-abortion legislation ahead of, in a, you know, ahead of 2024. She said, I want us to find some middle ground. That's what she told, um, you know, uh, the host on NBC's this week after voicing support for the court's decision to protect uh, Michael Pristone. She said there are in my home state of South Carolina there was a very small group of state legislatures that filed a bill that would execute women who have abortions and gave more rights to rapists than women who have been raped. She said, that's the wrong message heading into 2024. We're going to, we're going to lose huge if we continue to go down this path of extremists. And then you have New Hampshire governor, Chris Sununu uh, voicing the same concerns. He said, if we stay in our traditional lanes, we're going to lose. There's no doubt about, there's no doubt about it. That's what he told NBC's meet the press. Um, you know, Sununu has referenced polls that he said show dwindling support for legislation banning abortion from younger generations of Republicans. Uh, Sununu is also someone who has styled himself as, or as, as he, at least he's trying to position himself as the anti-Trump, the one who's willing to go after Trump besides Chris Christie. He's the one that repeatedly, time and time again, going back to January of this year, has said Trump is not going to be the nominee. Mark my words, Trump will not be the nominee. Now, polling suggests otherwise. Uh, Joy, I think you're going to jump in. I was just going to echo um, some of the things that Mr. Cook was saying. I think that um, the biggest issue right now is that the Dobbs decision said that it's not a that it's a state's issue. Now people don't know what they want to do as people who want to who want to have more power than just their state over and have more power over than just their state when it comes to abortion rights. So I think that there's an issue now in terms of where the Republican Party wants to head because honestly, the states the it's a state's issue thing. It doesn't touch on exactly um, what, which is like the 
the belief that there's actually a wrongdoing in abortion. It doesn't touch on that issue in that decision, obviously. So now they're trying to find other justifications that still fit in line with this decision because on some way it's kind of in support of what they want or leaning towards um, gives them the room to be anti-abortion in various states. Um, but like in a state like Texas where this, um, this, this case is coming out of, or like where Judge Kexmark is located, this is a state that's pro-total abortion. Um, but then there's other states in the same district that are not on that same in that same area politically. And so I just think that there's an issue where now people don't know exactly what it is that they want, what's far enough for them to be able to still win, but not too extreme. I don't think that that, con that consideration is being taken. I think that those who are the most extreme are just staying in their extremes. But as that sentiment has been expressed, um, that's not going to be a winning position. Um, and so I think that there's just that issue amongst there's there's no way really for people to agree when they think that there's a fundamental wrongdoing, whether it's six, nine, 15 weeks, then how do you change your position on that after um, to kind of be a little bit more lenient with abortion rights? I think that there's an issue there in that there's some people who don't want to move that goalpost. And how do they reconcile that amongst the rec the Republican Party? Yeah, I, 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 I think I, I think I, throughout. I would, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I think throughout American history, I think you know, every generation has wrestled with some of these hot button issues. And I think every generation has really met the, the moment. I think that, you know, this generation will meet the moment with these issues. I think this is why America is, is such a great nation. Um, you know, faith in our legal system and our way to debate some of these issues. And I have, you know, no reason to believe that America uh, will rise to the moment here. Ish. Yeah, no, absolutely, Jared. And I, I completely agree with you. And I think that that that's uh, hopefully the blessing in disguise in, in Dobbs is that it gives the, the power back to and back to the people to to really come to the realization on their own that they really want a middle ground on this issue. Like so it's hopefully it sparks people to realize that their role in this civic process, like, OK, I'm going to actually have to engage in the system to help ensure that we get the um, amount that we get the kind of policies and laws that we want. Um, but I would also push back to Professor Cook's point that a national ban would even be constitutional. I'm not sure, but they bring it under the inter interstate commerce. Like, I think the Supreme Court has already showed an unwillingness to, for for this to be, you know, I, well, I'm, I'm curious as to like well, how they would actually like bring that. And, and I'm sure it would be constitutional challenges on the, on Congress's right to do such. Sure, I mean, I, I don't have any doubt that there's smart lawyers that would challenge it. But, but I think it I think a national ban on abortion is likely constitutional. The, 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 yeah. uh, the Congress has the authority under the under the Constitution uh, for um, uh, you just mentioned interstate commerce to use the interstate commerce clause as the vehicle because then you don't have a differentiation between citizens' rights from state to state to state. No, but, but that, that's not what the Commerce Clause is about. It's not about ensuring there's no differentiation between rights. It's about like, does that particular, does the federal government have the right to govern that particular issue? And this seems to be something solely intrinsic to like, you know, human beings and, and society and police power, if I've ever kind of heard. Because if not this, why not just, why can't the federal government just outright make crimes and laws across the board? That's not, you know, so I, I think that it, it would be. The federal government bans a number of things. 
I, I know, but they, they're all like probably have closer, you know, nexuses to interstate commerce or whatever enabling statute that they rely on or whatever, you know, national agency that's been, you know, bestowed with power that's been constitutional. Well, and now there's not there's not necessarily a national agency. There 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 can be a ban. Mm -hmm. You know, but 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 you know, I, I guess we're not gonna answer that question here yeah, tonight. Yeah. But but yeah. but the argument is that a federal ban would be based on either um, it would be based on some provision of the Constitution, obviously, that gives the national legislature the authority to legislate, to prohibit certain behavior, to make it a, to make it a federal offense, because, you know, you can. But 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 the Constitution only gave Congress's powers that they that are they haven't gave to the states, so that they they have they don't have like the the, the broad. No 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 no. no. The Constitution does two things. Right. It expressly grants the national government certain things, and it reserves certain things to the states. So the, 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 just the, that the it states has received been, general not police just power. That it has not been reserved to the states. There it there are express grants. It's it's a grant of express authority mm -hmm. to do certain things. Right. And it reserves right. in in the Tenth Amendment those things that were not expressly granted to the states or, or to the federal government are are reserved to the states. It, it's it's a classic states' rights argument. What his what right. is left to the states? Okay. And right. and, yeah. and that is yeah. that is a that's litigated frequently as to where the feds stop and the and the states begin. And mm -hmm. the states' rights people would argue that the federal government has no authority to do a whole bunch of things that the Supreme Court has said they do. And and I think we have the Supreme Court that would be more sympathetic to these type of arguments these days. Well, well, you have the Supreme Court that may be more sympathetic to those arguments. But you also have a Supreme Court that 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 Mr. Ford talked about, which which I think it, it is the the obverse of Dobbs, which is if you say, as as Justice Alito said, that this is something the state decide, but by the same token, if you're the same Supreme Court that authorizes or or legitimizes gerrymandering in a way that the citizens don't have a chance to articulate then you really haven't given the citizens control in the states of what you think you what you say you've done so if, if, if you allow the states to create a situation where like in wisconsin or tennessee or a number of states where no matter what the so-called democrats do they can never get control of the state legislature and therefore control the legislation that comes out of that state legislature then as a Supreme Court, you really are not about giving citizens the prerogative to govern themselves. Now, I, I know I'm just asking you to educate me all night, but I, uh, how, could, how would it be impossible in those regions for the Democratic, like, couldn't they just go over to the other side of the fence and recruit more people, like, on the ground, like, with actual citizen voters that's in those red areas? What are you saying? You mean, are, are you, are, am I to understand that you mean People then become registered as, Dem as Democrats, registered as Republicans, and then take over the Republican Party and make the Republican Party do what they want. I, I, I'm, but yeah, that's why the comment kind of struck me. No, is that, is that that there's the no way for the Democrats, huh? Is that the hypothetical you're setting up? I believe so. Yes, if I'm okay. understanding correctly. Yeah. So then the question gets to be: Why do I have to change my party affiliation to to to, to exercise my rights as a citizen to voting representation or representation in my state legislature? Why have I got to play a game? Why do I have to pretend Republican in order to get the right to control the state legislature? How come ideas don't prevail as opposed to party affiliation? I, I, I get what you're saying. I think it's an unnecessary hurdle. 
but I think it's a hurdle. Just like just like the hurdle was made, it could be taken down, and there are paths forward. So I don't want. Uh, I just the only thing that your statement just seemed to imply that there's no way to do it. While it, there while unnecessary burden barriers exist, it's not necessarily undoable. Like, but nowadays, I, any extra barriers to civic engagement, I take your point. That's the same thing segregation has said. If you could count the number of bubbles Mm -hmm. on a bar of soap, you can vote. I'm not keeping you from voting. I'm just making sure you can answer these questions about the Constitution. Mm-hmm. But, but what we're talking about is someone is someone simply re-registering though. Like I get what you say. It's slippery slope. I see. I take that argument. But we are in you know uh, we are in 2023, and and that's all the steps that can take. And if and if you have reason to think that if a person taking those steps won't will have to face extra steps, then you know like I think that would prove your point more. But if that's the one step, I agree that it's unnecessary. But there's still a path forward to for civic engagement. I just never want to take the eye off of civic engagement, and people have their have owner. People can change whatever they don't like. Yeah, but you can't outregister some of this BS. You you cannot register enough voters to overcome an, an a, a systemic inequality. Okay, you cannot mm-hmm. register around that. I am all for civic engagement, but mm-hmm. but if you build the system the way it's built, for example, in Florida or Georgia or 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 Wisconsin, you can't get around it. In Ohio, for example. They don't want to have the, the, the Republican legislature doesn't want there to be a vote by the citizens on a constitutional amendment to to uh, in, in enshrine abortion, because historically, Ohio had had a simple majority vote for approving constitutional amendments. The legislature wants to pass a law that says we're going to make it two thirds. Now, you can't you can't fix that. And, you know, with with by organizing, you can't go out and register a bunch of people, and 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 fix that, because the reality is that if the if the debate is divided the way it is now, and you're going to say I'm going to get around that close vote of 52, 53 percent, I'm going to jam you with 66, then you change the game, and then you say, well, you didn't win. That's an insert that that is an improper burden, an improper hurdle. On the exercise of my right as a citizen, I would argue. Now, right. is the Supreme Court in Ohio going to decide that? Probably. Is the Supreme Court of the United States going to decide that? Probably. I don't know the answer, but but that's my argument: is that you're creating unnecessary, uh, improper hurdles to the exercise of my right because because you want to you want to fix the you want to rig the game so you can't lose. And 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 I think the the, the, the voting ought to be about ideas. If you have a better idea, you convince the majority of the people, you win. If you don't, you lose. You shouldn't build in some that says no matter what Republican want, runs, he or she is going to win because there's not enough Democrats ever to outvote me. I, I will say this, bringing it back to you know the context of the 2024 election cycle. I think this is where Trump is more of a, a, a is stronger as a candidate than DeSantis. You have the governor of Florida, I think Nate alluded to it a little bit earlier. Um, you know, he signed into a law bill approved by the Republican dominated Florida legislator to ban abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. Now that's the, the, the classic argument that governors and we have when they're debate stage against each other is that the governor is the one that actually enacts uh, policies that folks can see, you know, how they could be act, enacted in their state as a microcosm for what could possibly come if they were elected president for the country, whereas the senators mostly deliberate about 
national legislation, like the piece of national potential national legislation we were just discussing tonight. Um, I think Trump can come across as a stronger candidate because he can always point back to his administration. He can point to the fact that he's pro-life. He's the one responsible for the, you know, as he constantly lets the American public know, he's the one that's responsible for, um, you know, Amy Coney Barrett, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh being on the court to help overturn Roe versus Wade and, and achieve this goal for conservatives. Um, whereas DeSantis has to answer why he thinks the United States would benefit from what Florida has done with a six-week ban on abortion. Um, and I think you know, going forward into the election, that's going to be that's going to be the the thing that really differentiates maybe the two of them as we're looking to see them contrast with one another. Well, it was a liability for him on the Republican side. Florida had been looked at as an abortion haven in the south in the southeast because Georgia and Alabama have six-week bans. But if you can drive from, say, you know, southern Georgia, say Valdosta, or if you can drive from Mobile into you know northern Florida and get your abortion at say 15 weeks or 20 weeks or whatever the law was before, I think it was 15 then you know that makes florida a safe, a regional safe haven for abortion if you can't make it to new york or california so that was a huge liability for him if he plans on becoming a presidential candidate because you're going to have nikki haley and mike pence on the debate stage saying you know we need to get rid of abortion and uh ron DeSantis uh did nothing didn't lift a finger while people were coming into his state from around the country to get abortions so he had to kind of shore up his own conservative credibility on abortion. The only thing is that by appealing to this, you know, to a very small portion of Americans on on a hot button issue, he has kind of also handcuffed himself if he comes out of next year's primary as the Republican. And and I don't think he needed to do it at all. Like he was, it was already him or Trump already. So like, I think that he could have started working towards the middle where Trump has already lost. Trump has lost, you know, the, the, the middle and DeSantis was still trying to earn it. And he just, I think he just shot himself in the foot royally. Like I, it makes no sense politically to me. I really don't understand why he, the, the base, I get what you're saying, but like say Trump hasn't even, I bet Trump is probably seen as the hero on abortion in the community for what he did to the Supreme Court. So, yeah, I, I just, I think DeSantis could have played the long game, but I understand what you're saying as far as needing to sure up the base to even get to the long game. So it's a, uh, a debate worth having. These candidates, Asa Hutchinson, Sununu, I mean, not Sununu, not Sununu, not Chris Christie, but but Nikki Haley, um, you know, um, Asa Hutchinson, Pence, all of these folks hope to somehow overtake Trump, right, without blatantly contrasting themselves with him. And as it pertains to abortion, they're just hoping that maybe if I come up with this new middle ground approach, no, no. you've got to take the guy on and say why you're more pro-life <laughs> than he is or why your approach makes better sense than Trump. You can't you can't just hope that the candidates would make the connection for themselves. You have to be that, the one out there drawing the comparisons and making the contrast. But as we're wrapping up, because time is, uh, you know, is, is escaping us, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts has uh, uh, declined, he's declined an invitation from Senator Dick Durbin, who was the chair of the J Senate Judiciary Committee, to testify before the panel, uh, calling such testimony by Chief Justices exceedingly rare. The Senate panel planned to hold a hearing on May 2nd, 
next week to examine what Durbin called common sense proposals to hold Supreme Court justices to the same ethical uh, standards as the rest of the federal judiciary and the rest of the federal government. Durbin had invited Roberts or his designate to take part. And of course, this is all in, in light of the revelations that uh, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas has received a lot of generous donations from a conservative donor that he used to be able to go on extravagant trips and vacations with. Um, what are your thoughts about this particular situation? Um, my initial reaction was I was disappointed in, in, in Justice Thomas, just as someone who's, you know, seen him as, you know, a principled, you know, actor, even if I disagree with some of his methodology, I always viewed it as someone who had a view and had principles and he stuck to it. And like this, for me, just has been a bit surprising, you know, characterized because as, you know, an African-American servant, as long as he has on the, on the, on the highest court of the land, you know, I think that he often didn't get the, you know, the consideration and respect for the hard work and the place and, and actually being in that position as much as we would have gave it to the next person for the for the same reasons on, on some levels. So just as, as a citizen, I was just disappointed and, and somewhat surprised. Um, I, I think, think Dick Durbin, go ahead, Joy. Um, I was just going to say, you know, I think that it really says a lot for Justice Roberts to decline this invitation to come and speak on an ethics issue um, concerning the court when the court has um, for a while been called to come out with an ethics code that applies simply to them. And they were, they have just not done that. I think that in light of what Justice Thomas, you know, the things that have come out recently um, about his finances and the disclosures and lack thereof, um, I think that especially in an age where the court is starting to, a lot of people are questioning the legitimacy of this system, of the Supreme Court system. And I think that this Justice Roberts had an opportunity here to go and speak in front of these people about the ethics, about what level of ethics the Supreme Court is held to, and to refuse to do so, um, I think is a very interesting decision when we're in a time where people are questioning the legitimacy of this um, body of, you know, this branch of law. And so I, 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 I would be interested to see in what the what the kind of the thought process was behind that, because the only thing that I can think of is to protect um, and to not enforce an, a, a written ethics code against the Supreme Court justices um, to not address an issue that a lot of Americans who are the constituents, the constituents of the Supreme Court um, do have a problem with. I think that we all have an issue with the ethics concerns of the lack of disclosures, of the things that have been disclosed that are, it, I mean, problematic to me concerning Justice Ro um, Justice Thomas and his finances. So I am just interested to see kind of what the thought process was um, behind this decision for Justice Roberts and what the temperature kind of across the court um, is in this decision. Yeah, I, I think the behavior of Justice um, Thomas um, has been beyond, you know, problematic, and I, I think it's it's been it's beneath the, you know, the the, the office that he holds as Supreme Court justice. It, you know, even if you could be a fan of Clarence Thomas, like ish, or or you could not be a fan of, of him, but I think you know, you know, just moving politics from it, I think his behavior um, is just. I think all Americans can look at that and say that this. Uh, comes brings about some type of ethical um, issues and like you know me I'm not surprised I think you know some people might be surprised about Clarence Thomas um, I, I, you know but when you look through his history you know his his behavior 
um, you know, some of even some of the you know opinions that, that he write. I, I, you know, I, I come to a, a different conclusion than people of this. A lot of people like Ish and some other you know people in this country. Um, but I, I think there has to be a way to figure out how to deal with uh, some of these um, issues um, because you can't have this happen um, because it is going to uh, call into question, I think, the institution. I think there's already been questions um, in regard to the institution um, and its legitimacy the last few years. Um, I think behavior you know, that we've seen with Justice Thomas uh, is furthering um, you know, the, the, those issues and those calls um, towards you know, the institution of the Supreme Court. Court reform is something that has gained a lot of grassroots momentum. You know, whether it is term limits for justices or changing the number of federal courts or even adding justices um, to the court. And, you know, generally, you know, members of the Supreme Court try to stay out of political debates, but they've all kind of signaled that they're not with the idea of just adding a bunch of justices to the Supreme Court. But this is kind of Chief Justice Roberts' opportunity almost to show why that wasn't enough, reassert his control of the court and preserve his own legacy because Chief Justice Roberts is kind of viewed as overseeing the real decline in legitimacy of the court. So I'm with you 100% on that, Joy, that this was uh, really an unforced error on Roberts to not show up or to not send a representative from the court to show up and talk about you know, installing a code of ethics, especially with, you know, with uh, Justice Thomas's actions, with us now finding out that Justice Gorsuch is also selling property to law firms that regularly argue before the court. Um, I also think that Dick Durbin should very much be ashamed of himself for just kind of saying, okay, I guess they're not showing up and going on with the program and kind of issuing that very weak statement about how, you know, history will remember and history will record. Dick Durbin is not Senate Majority Whip. He's also the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is the committee that directly oversees nominations to not only the Department of Justice, but to the federal judiciary itself. So he plays a very central role in how that history is written. And so if he abdicates his own role, then that leaves it to other actors to fill in the gap. Dick Durbin is the empty suit. And, you know, it's, it's really unfortunate because he should, he should, he should reprimand the for not appearing, but he should go forward with a hearing with a, a, a group of judges, retired maybe, ethicists, and, and fashion a policy that will be applied to the Supreme Court. John Roberts is living in the past. He wants the Supreme Court to be what it was 100 years ago, a kind of mystical body that nobody knew anything that they did except they handed down the law and everybody said, well, okay, that's what they said. Let's move on. It's past that. Clarence Thomas has done a significant degree of ruination of the reputation of the Supreme Court, but he's not alone. Alito, these opinions that they've written that look like political opinions as opposed to legal opinions has helped make the Supreme Court look like a political body. As Mr. Taylor knows in my class, I oftentimes tell my students, the Supreme Court is a political body. It's not supposed to be a partisan political body, but it is a political body. It is part of the political fabric of the government of the United States. They have ruined that sort of ivory tower thing that the Supreme Court had. And, and Justice Roberts is trying to cling to it. And that train has left the station. And, and the, the bigger part of the public just doesn't see him like that anymore. 
and and the public is having a hard time trying to figure out why don't the justices have to follow rules that everybody else has why should we just implicitly trust them because we gave them these lifetime jobs and they're going to behave in a way that's contrary to the way we know humans behave if somebody does a favor for you you're going to feel some kind of way about them and that's why we don't want judges to get favors from people because we want them not to have that temptation so why are these nine the only nine in the country who can avoid that temptation it's it's just facially bogus but but, but can't congress have just like like to your point that like well, why haven't they applied the supreme court these rules to the supreme court thus far like did it just never come up did it never cross their mind no i i think i think they they it 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 did cross their mind but they they decided not to do it because they thought them of them as a co-equal branch and and that the the court would behave and now the court's not behaving and i think they're going to have to do something now i i think it it was tradition it was it was the way things were and just like donald trump broke a lot of the the, the social contracts the 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 unstated expectations that people had about how the president would behave the supreme court has now broken a lot of those unspoken rules too and now people looking at them differently so i think there's i think i think the problem is going to be that mr schumer and mr durbin are going to have to be embarrassed by their democratic caucus to force them to have the hearing to produce some legislation and i don't think the caucus is willing to do that so i think mr justice roberts will probably prevail because nothing will happen although i think something certainly should happen yeah and professor cook maybe maybe i'm, I'm wrong here but you know from my understanding the supreme court would have to kind of self-regulate them, themselves I, I don't know if congress will have any type of enforcement po um, power over supreme court to enforce you know some ethical standards um, I, I think you know maybe i'm wrong but I, my thought was that you know it's kind of a suggestion to the supreme court to self-regulate yourself well the 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 it may be a constitutional article, crisis article, on some level article three courts uh are created uh by congress the, the supreme court is a creature of the constitution but 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 the Supreme Court has rules, uh, has to the Supreme Court justices have to follow laws that are enacted by the Congress that apply to all federal judges. They could, they could do that. They could do what you said. They could say, these are recommendations that we expect the Supreme Court to follow and the Supreme Court could tell them to go pound sand. I get that. But they could also say, these are rules that apply to any justice. And I don't think it conflicts with the constitutional provision that creates a Supreme Court, it doesn't say that they're extra, the, the, the laws that apply to anybody else. It, it just doesn't say that it does either. I mean, I, I'm, I'm with you there. But I think that I think that the Congress can create or, or apply the current ju judicial code of conduct to the Supreme Court, because Supreme Court justices exempted themselves, the Supreme Court created these, 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 these rules for the federal judiciary but there are rules that apply to federal employees federal officials that the congress created that the that the judiciary didn't apply to them so the most recent rules that that are arguably not followed by justice uh uh thomas relating to the sale of property isn't in the judicial code it's a federal law that applies to every judge and, <clears throat> and to a whole bunch of federal employees
So it could, so that could happen. I'm no, no, and I'm, yeah, no, please. I didn't mean to cut you off too early because I think those are all valid points. I just think on some levels we're gonna have to get comfortable with the fact that the Supreme Court is one of the is part of the checks and balance system. So whatever law is passed by Congress, they're going to ultimately be the final say of that law. Um, and so, and but I guess that's you know one of the a situation that just may be ridiculous because like we can always have a constitutional crisis, but th- that would be a, a different conversation, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, I think it's going to be litigated. I I don't yeah. I don't I don't have any doubt that 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 then who li- who decides whether the law applies to the Supreme Court? Is, does the Supreme Court get to make that decision? <laughs> there is the Hatch Act, which limits you know political activity by executive branch employees so that is you know just a quick example that jumps to mind so there is precedent for it it wouldn't necessarily be unprecedented i just think it doesn't take any of their power judiciary we uh you know we're it would be a little unpredictable with this judiciary if congress is kind of forced to move and use its own constitutional authority i'm I'm not that familiar with the the hatch you're saying that it regulates um some um executive uh, agencies like administrative agencies it's and then not, ex- not necessarily administrative, but it does limit, you know, campaigning, right? Like the president and the vice president are exempt, but uh, other uh, executive branch employees, yeah. you know, White House officials can't really campaign on behalf of, can't campaign on behalf of businesses necessarily, and they can't really campaign That's on a whole behalf other branch, of though. candidates. That's why. Yeah. Exactly. So it's another branch That's of government. Point. That That's means the they point. can do it but, for But it's not the Supreme Court. Judiciary. The Supreme Court is, is a, you know, yeah. No, 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 no. But, point, but, yeah. but, but the legislative branch, Congress, has created a, a law, the Hatch Act, that applies yeah. to the executive branch. It says right. you yeah, have to okay. behave this way. Some people, everybody in the in the executive mm-hmm. branch, except the president and the vice president, actually. Well, Professor Cook, uh, Joy Vadura, Ishmael Ibrahim, Jerry Ford, and Nate, I've had a wonderful discussion with each of you. Uh, we went over time, but you know, it was a substantive discussion. And in the words of Dwight David Eisenhower, we had a good growl. Uh, that's what he used to say at the end of every uh, cabinet meeting. <laughs> he got two shout outs this episode, Mike. <laughs> Let's go. I love Eisenhower. Well, with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and, hit con- and conclude episode 105, episode 105 of the Political Mike podcast. Thank you all for tuning in. Hi, it's Mike Taylor, the host of the Political Mike podcast. If you like what you heard tonight, I want to invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. I also want to ask you to please follow along on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and Amazon Music. You can also follow along and keep up with the conversation through our Telegram channel. Follow us on Twitter at at ThePolyMike, and follow us on Instagram. Thank you so much, and no matter what part of the political spectrum that you fall on, I want to encourage you to stay engaged, stay a part of the conversation, and stay informed. Thank you.